You're listening to the Pines Church Podcast. To learn more, visit thepineschurch.com. G.K. Chesterton said in regards to this pilgrimage that we're all homesick in our own homes. Augustine writes, we're pilgrims in our own land. It's like when you get done with a deployment for those of you that have served or for those of you that have went off to college, you go and you leave for four years, you make Bangor maybe your home and actually you're from somewhere else and you finally return from that deployment or you finally return from college and you're so excited to be back home, but it just doesn't quite feel the same, does it? In The Hobbit, token was really trying to emphasize this idea. He wrote The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings in response to World War I, which he had experienced himself. And in The Hobbit, Bilbo sets out on an adventure. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings nerd, so you're gonna have a lot of references to Lord of the Rings. And I just absolutely love these movies because there's so much symbolism in the midst of it. And that's what Tolkien was actually, and C.S. Lewis were trying to get across. And so Bilbo sets out on this adventure and 18 times, In the story of The Hobbit, he references his longing to return home. And when he finally does return home, he finds Saxville Baggins is selling all of his stuff because they thought that he had actually died. And when he finds, you know, and he finally squares that all away, he finds that home really isn't the same place. And this, this sentiment is repeated in The Lord of the Rings when Frodo goes off and he returns home. He finds that it's not the same, nor is he the same. His eyes have been opened to something greater. Why is that? That's because our home, our true home is in heaven. And that is what each and every single one of us are looking for, whether we can diagnose that ourselves or not. Lewis said that this longing longing inside of us for home and for our creator is often awoken through storytelling. This is why many readers, are there any, re- any readers in the house? I know there are a couple, yeah. In fact, there's one girl in here. She's, uh, oh gosh, how old is she? I think she's 11 years old. And she has read one series of books, which I believe is seven books. She just told me that this morning, nine times. She's read this series of books nine times. And so this is why you find many readers will return to the same book over and over and over again and read it. Why? Have you ever asked yourself the question why? They know the twists and turns in the plot. They know how the story is going to end, yet they find themselves reading a series of seven books nine times. And she's 11, so she's probably not done. Why is that? It's because it awakens in them a longing for the only other world that they will ever truly know, heaven. They long to revisit the world that was shared and told and described in that story. It's the same sentiment that's captured in children after hearing a great bedtime story, right? When you read your children a bedtime story, what's the automatic response when you close the pages of that book? Read it again. Read it again. This is true relationally as well. Have you ever felt lonely? Sure, we all have. We've all, we've all felt lonely, right? What does that tell us about our nature? Well, if you felt hungry, it tells you that you need food, right? If you've ever felt thirsty, it tells you that you need water. And so when we feel lonely, it tells us that we, were, we are indeed relational beings that crave relationship. 
The fact that you can actually communicate tells you that you were created for the purpose of relationship. But have you ever felt lonely in a crowd? So it's not just any relationship. Have you ever felt lonely maybe even under your, under your own roof with the people that are supposed to know you the best? Unseen, unheard, and you still wrestle and struggle with these emotions. Again, toking is suggesting that it points, what, what he's suggesting, it points to a longing that only our creator in heaven can ultimately and truly satisfy. So Matt, thanks for geeking out and sharing on Token and C.S. Lewis for the past few minutes. But what the heck does this have to do with Christmas? That is a very good question. And my response to that question would be, it has everything to do with Christmas. The longing for our creator has everything to do with Christmas. Paul said it like this. In Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus, oh, hold on, let me, let me just, let me back up one, okay? This longing for our creator was met through the father sending his son, Jesus, to bridge the gap. He literally tore the veil and he put a bridge between eternity and ourselves. He made a way by sending his son into the world, the Christmas story, for us to be in unbroken relationship with him, not just in the here and now, but for all of eternity. And when that revelation really comes to life, and it's not something that you just know, or you can repeat like a parakeet, but it's something that you're living in, you will find a joy that surpasses all understanding. It will elevate you above the adversity and the circumstances of this world. And that ultimately is what holiness is, to be set apart, to be set above the things that the enemy would try to drag you back down with in this world. And that joy is made available to each and every single one of us. The beauty of the Christmas story is found in Luke 2.8. It's a truth that the angels proclaim to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news with great joy. And this is the most beautiful part. In the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the scripture we shared earlier is that it's for all people. Not some people, not a certain select few, not the ones who have it all figured out. But this good news with great joy was given to all people. People, John 3, 16, Tim Tebow put it under his eyes. It's the most popular scripture in all of the Bible. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It doesn't say the church. It says the world. That is the good news of the gospel. Man complicates it. Man confuses it. But this is the good news that we have to share with our brothers and sisters and our enemies at Christmas. It's this same joy that Jesus himself said, Paul records in Hebrews 12 too, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of 
God. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? It was the joy of being in unbroken relationship with us. It was the joy of coming alongside us and excavating the purpose, the destiny, and the dreams that he's placed on the inside of each and every single one of us. You see, you weren't made in an assembly line. You weren't made in a factory. The Bible says that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. That word fearful means he wasn't scared when he made you. He's talking about a reverence. He's talking about an awe. And you know what's interesting about scripture is every time you see that word awe and reverence and fearful, it's always related to God. And that's something that I've preached on many times. We've lost our awe of God. We've lost our reverence of God. But here's God the creator of all things, saying that he made you with that same reverence and awe because he made you and I in his image. I think many of us cannot grasp the fullness of this statement that God is for us. That God is good to us. That God is faithful to us. That God will redeem any mess that we find ourselves in. In fact, none of us are to the point beyond redemption. If you close your eyes and you think of of the most evil person on on the face of the planet. Maybe they're in the White House. Maybe they're in a foreign country. Maybe they're in your house. Okay, Whoever that most evil person is. God's not done with them. God's not done penning their story, authoring their story. And they're one decision away from being in relationship with him. God never gives up on anyone, even when you give up on yourself. And that is the good news. If we're willing to turn, if anyone is willing to turn in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their mess, in the midst of all of the ish of this life, if they're willing to turn, God is willing to get into their mess. And put their feet on solid ground. The Bible tells us that it's this joy that we derive our strength. Remember I told you that a broken spirit, it zaps our strength? In Nehemiah 8.10, it says the joy of the Lord is our strength. I absolutely love that. Your strength isn't found in your intellect in your experience, in your education, or any physical attribute that you can possess. Your strength is found in the joy of the Lord. This revelation of understanding who God is in relationship to you and being in a relationship with your creator is your strength. So how do we, a good question to be like, how do we get this strength? Do we go to the gym? Do we, you know, is there there a shot for that? Can I get a shot for that? Where's the gear for that, right? That's a good question we need to ask ourselves. Well, Paul has a lot to say about this idea of joy in the book of Philippians. It's a letter. I'll just give you a little bit of history, okay? Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians in prison. He was facing possible execution. He had been shipwrecked, stoned, and that was just from his enemies. Many in the faith were actually distancing themselves from Paul preaching out of selfish ambition and pride. Why do I share that? Because Paul was all by himself in a dungeon waiting to be executed. 
So he, may, he thinks he may be writing the last letter he's ever going to write, yet he discovered something in that prison cell that transcended him above his circumstances. And he wanted to make sure that the church, the body of Christ, you, generation after generation after generation had this revelation, had this truth that he discovered in this prison cell. He highlights joy over, or not over, 18 times in this small book of Philippians. And he says to us in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Every time I hear this, I always think of that song. Rejoice in the Lord always. Remember that song? Anybody remember that song? Okay. That's why I'm not allowed on the worship team. But <laughs> one day, one day, I used to sing a mean karaoke, but <laughs> she would let me on. I know she would. Um, but I love this. Paul's doubling down on this idea. He, he, he didn't have a stuttering problem. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It's like when you're trying to communicate something to somebody and you say it and you're like, look, dude, I don't think you're taking me serious. Like you need, you repeat yourself because you want to make sure that they get this truth. Maybe it's like Chick-fil-A has free chicken sandwiches on Monday and they're like, okay, whatever. And you're like, dude, Chick-fil-A, Monday, free. I can't say it any clearer than that. Don't miss out. You are warned, right? You're going to repeat it. And so Paul is doubling down on this idea of rejoicing. And rejoicing is a theme, again, that you find all throughout scripture. But it's one of those words that gets tossed around that we sing in worship songs. But none of us can really clearly define it. It remains in the abstract. We buy a wooden plaque of it at Hobby Lobby and we put it on our wall. Rejoice, right? But it's actually a commandment. It's something that he had discovered inside of this prison cell, which is the last thing that he should be talking about, which is rejoicing. Re is a prefix. It means to repeat. It means to take joy in the things that God has already done in and through your life. So to be purposeful in carving out time in your day to think, which we don't spend a lot of time doing these days because everything thinks for us, but to think and to remember all those times that God has proven himself strong, good, faithful, and redemptive over your life. And what that does, and what I found is that many of us have a real easy time listing all the things that we need, all the things that are going wrong in our life. And if you don't believe that, just pull up your social media. That is a place for everyone to air like, oh, and this was done to me. And then my name spelled M-A-T-T. When I ordered my drink at Starbucks, they just put M-A-T. Like, I can't believe they did that. And like, now I have to start my day and they said my name wrong. And so I don't know why people talk like that when they're complaining, but that's what they sound like to me. So, but we can come up with a list of all the things that aren't going right in our life. But many people have a difficult time thinking about all the, all the things that are going well in their life. And this is an important practice because what it does is it enthrones God on our heart. Because when we just focus on all the things that are going wrong, we ultimately open ourselves up to complaining. And complaining is basically looking at God saying, I don't really like the way you're doing things. And if I were you, I'd be doing them a little bit different. And that's an extremely dangerous place because, God, because the enemy uses that complaining to, to, to impregnate you with pride. We know that the Bible says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So as we humble ourselves, even in the midst of not necessarily having the answer, even in the midst of facing adversity from all sides, and we recount the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the redemptive 
attributes of God. We start to build our faith, right? So what does that look like practically? Well, I can tell you this from personal experience. When I get up in the morning and I get out of bed, the very first thing I do is get a cup of coffee because that is a source of strength as well. And you need coffee and that's important as well. And I think, yeah, so I get coffee. But after I get that coffee, okay, in my mind, I just start to rehearse and I start to recount and I start to remember and I start to rejoice in all the things that God has done for me. Lord, thank you that I have a roof over my head. Father, thank you that we're able to provide our children with Christmas gifts. Lord, thank you that we have food in our refrigerator. Thank you that our vehicles are running. Lord, thank you that I met my wife in my frosted tips, cool water cologne, creed listening days. That is a miracle unto itself. God makes a way where there is no way. He parts sea, single people. I'm telling you, man. I'm telling you, God is faithful. And so I build it up. So whatever the enemy has mounted against me or whatever my coworkers have mounted against me, whatever the world has mounted against me that day, if I have a flat tire, if somebody, you know, fraudulent uh, charges in my bank account, I've already built God up to the point on feeding on his faithfulness that it's just going to be a little thing that I'm, I'm able to step over. Instead of hijacking my entire day going, oh, woe is me. I have fraudulent charges in my checking account. Why does this have to happen to me? Because I've built it up in my heart. So that's one of the ways that we, we, we infuse ourselves with that joy. Another scripture, Psalm 1611, this is out of the ESV. It says, in your presence is fullness of joy. So how do we get joy? By being in God's presence. How do we get in God's presence? By being intentional to be in his word, by being intentional to commit to being in prayer, which prayer, again, isn't going to him with a litany of different requests, but it's a dialogue rather than a monologue. It's positioning our hearts to share what's in there, but then also posturing ourselves to listen to what he has to share. It's communication. It's a dialogue. It's a conversation. Also, fullness of joy. If there's fullness of joy, that means there's half a tank of joy. And that means some of you may be coming in here this morning running in on fumes, right? And so if we find ourselves running in on fumes of joy, if we're getting hot-headed, if we're getting impatient with people, if we find ourselves rehashing all the things that aren't going right in our life, it's an indicator to us, just like that red gas dial, that we need to refuel, that we need to get in the presence of God because we're running low on joy and we can only give what we God. And we get that joy by being in relationship with God, which is the story of Christmas that God made a way for us to be in unbroken relationship with him. That is the joy that propels us into the future. That is the joy that should be on the tip of our tongues to share with everybody that we come in contact with. That is the joy that we can look opposition squarely in the eye and not be overcome by fear because we know that we have the power to overcome anything the enemy or the world throws against us. I'm going to kind of land this plane, which means I'm going to 
say this about seven more times. But uh, John Piper had this quote, and I thought it was just beautiful about the Christmas story, so I'm just going to go ahead and read it. It says, Thus says the Lord, The meaning of Christmas is that what is good and precious in your life need never be lost. And what is evil and undesirable in your life can be changed. The fears that the few good things that make you happy are slipping through your fingers and the frustrations that the bad things you hate about yourself or your situation can't be changed, these fears and these frustrations are what Christmas came to destroy. I love that juxtaposition, Christmas and destroy. Christmas came to destroy these things. It is God's message of hope this Advent that what is good need never be lost and what is bad can be changed. Many of you have watched Evander grow up here over the last couple of years. He's our out-of-the-box son. He's, he's kind of crazy. And um, he's, he's given me more gray hairs than all of my kids combined. And so he went through this little phase where he uh, introduced himself to his classmates and uh, to everyone as Seek and Destroy. And um, his teacher asked him how to pronounce his last name because, you know, we have a, we have a doozy of a last name. It's a lot of vowels, um, four vowels and a five-letter word, and it's Joya, but it looks like Gaiwa, Giwa, Gao. I've, I've, I've heard it pronounced many different ways. But it, it's a tongue twister. And so the teacher was just like, hey, I want to make sure I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. And she asked him how to pronounce it. And he replied to her, his Christian <laughs> kindergarten teacher, preschool teacher, actually, as seek and destroy. That's how he wanted to be uh, referred to. <laughs> On the other side of that coin, uh, Vander is very loving and uh, shares his love for Jesus uh, with all of his classmates and just random strangers in the mall or, it's, or at Starbucks. And this idea of destroy is something I wanted to get out of his vocabulary. You know, like, you got to get rid of that. It's a negative word. It's just like a, it's a harsh word. But I love that John Piper's definition that the that God sending his son Jesus came to destroy the work of the enemy. There are things in your life that need be destroyed. There are things in your life that need to be uprooted. There are things that you're planning on that God has placed in your heart that are genuinely birthed from him that you're going to start out in this new year under your New Year's resolutions, which I'm not knocking on. I think it's great to kind of recalibrate and to set new goals for yourself. But often the reason that those goals don't end up manifesting and there's empty parking lots in February at gyms all across America is because we haven't taken equal amount of time to recognize all the weeds that have been planted in our life. Jesus uses the parable that there are, there's good seed that falls on good soil, right? So the heart's right. The, the word is right. It's a true word. But there are these lies that are, are, are planted in our hearts as well. And they grow up alongside the good things that we're trying to do. And they choke it out. Think about a weed. It's competing for the same space, for the same nutrients, for the same water that the seed is trying to. And they don't just magically disappear. There is no roundup, which, by the way, causes cancer. So you should probably stay away from it anyway. But there's no roundup that you can spray on it. You have to be intentional to identify those lies that have been spoken over you and to get rid of those lies. And so there is this element that the truth of God, God's word exposes a light on these weeds, on these lies that we've believed about ourselves that need to be destroyed, that need to be uprooted so that we can walk in the fullness of all that God intended for our lives. So I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to invite the worship team back up here, and I really am going to close this time, I promise.
My challenge to everybody in this room is to not fall into the trap of leaving Christmas in the abstract, of not letting joy be this ethereal concept that absolves us from any personal and practical application, but that we take charge of pursuing this joy, of cultivating this joy, of committing to take time to recount, to remember all the good things that God has done in our life, to dialogue with God, to share the things that we're scared about, to share the things that we're struggling with, and to give him allowance into our life to provide his grace so that we can destroy and uproot those weeds. Your sin, your conflict with the devil, your victory. Jesus came to earth for all of that. Everything that you're concerned about, he's concerned about it. The Bible makes it a point to help you understand that he knows the number of hairs that are on your head. That not only did he create you, but that he's watching over you. That he's placed purpose on the inside of you. And there's no one more passionate about watching you walk in that purpose than him because he was the one that gave it to you. And Christmas is about focusing on that revelation. It's about sharing that revelation. It's about making sure that it doesn't just float away, but that we're taking conscious steps towards it. I want all of you to bow your heads and I just want to pray a proclamation over each and every single one of you. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for every single person under the sound of my voice. I thank you that they are fearfully and wonderfully made. I thank you that you've given them a destiny and a purpose in this world. And I pray, Father, that you would show them how to help excavate that purpose that you would illuminate the areas that are broken, where weeds have overtaken good seed that's trying to grow in their life. Maybe it's their finances. Maybe it's their relationships. Maybe it's anger. Lord, they want to be free from it. They want to be done with it. I pray that they would let you into those places of their mind and their heart and trust you to help uproot those things. I pray that we would be a body that exemplifies this joy. That we would live out all the days of our lives on this revelation that you are good, that you are faithful, and that you are redemptive. And I ask that through every action performed and every word spoken, Lord, that you would be glorified through those actions. That people would see your handiwork involved in our lives and in our victories and in our celebrations. God, we give you all the glory because you are so worthy. This season is all about you coming to earth. So we shower you with our praise today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Remember, Wednesday is our Christmas party. Until next time, Godspeed. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Pines Church Podcast, a sermon resource provided by the Pines Church in Bangor, Maine. We'd love to hear from you, so leave us a review on this podcast. If you have any questions, visit thepineschurch.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.